Hey, ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this special time that you've allowed us to have to be together, to be with you. And you are worthy. All of our praise, our thanks, our adoration, our attention, our affection, our very lives. And so we bring our lives before you this morning. Lord, desiring a fresh work of your spirit, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you touch us and transform us by the power of your spirit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 20. Revelation, what does Revelation mean, by the way? Revealing, unveiling. Um, really, the purpose of this book is to show us Jesus, that we might, that he might be revealed to us uh, in a fresh way, in a new way, that we would see him in all of his splendor, all of his majesty, all of his glory, to see him in all of his fullness. And hasn't it been a blessing to see Jesus as we've worked our way through? Um, and as we follow, as we simply follow the natural progression of the book, um, if you were here last week, chapter 19, we see the end of the tribulation um, happens when Jesus comes back, his second coming, and he sets up his kingdom on earth, which is chapter 21 or 20, which we're going to look at this morning. But in any event, the tribulation period is now over. Jesus comes. He conquers rebellion. He sets up his kingdom for how long? A thousand years. It's also known as the kingdom age or the millennial uh, reign of Jesus Christ. And uh, has Jesus done that yet? He hasn't done that yet, has he? Some people, some people think we're in the millennial reign right now. And I don't know what planet you're living on. <laughs> But it's just not happening yet. And, you know, what is the deal with the millennial kingdom? Number one, Jesus has made promises to Israel. And does God keep his promises? God keeps his promises. He's going to keep his promises to the nation of Israel. They will be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. And as we read, the, 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 the reader, the original reader of Revelation, they were familiar with their Old Testaments. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the word of God. They would know about the prophecies concerning the millennial kingdom. There's over, I think there's over 750 uh, prophecies concerning the second coming or the, the setup of the kingdom, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so just a couple of general characteristics as we work our way into this this morning. Number one, Jesus will be ruling and reigning. We've demonstrated that we cannot rule and reign ourselves. We are in need of his leadership and his leadership alone. He will set up his kingdom. He will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, there will be total peace. There will be total righteousness. Perfect peace, perfect righteousness will prevail. The planet and the animal kingdom will be restored and renewed to pre-fall conditions. You can check Isaiah chapter, if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 11. Check that out on your own. How cool is that going to be? Pre-fall conditions on planet Earth. The curse will be reversed. People will live for a super long time also. And so when Jesus came the first time, the people were anticipating this kingdom, by the way, weren't they? They weren't expecting a suffering servant. They were looking for a conquering king. Remember, even Jesus' disciples, Acts chapter 1. You guys remember Acts chapter 1? Jesus is getting ready to blast off to go back to heaven. You guys remember that? To descend into heaven. Remember what his disciples asked him? At, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Is it time for the kingdom to be set up right now? 
And what, what does Jesus say? The Father has not put it, you know, these are not the seasons and times for you to know about, but I'm going to send you out as my witnesses with the power of the Holy Spirit. But they were looking forward to this kingdom, anticipating it, expecting it. And now as we look at chapter 20, it is, uh, it's, it's going to be a reality, you guys, and this is what it's going to look like. So check it out with me, chapter 20, verse 1. God's word says, then I saw an angel. Who's I? John. Which John? John the Apostle. Thank you. This is John the Apostle. Remember, this is so important. He's trying to do the best he can to describe the things he's seeing and the things he's hearing. So what's the first thing he sees here in chapter 20? He says, I saw an, an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. Who's that? Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Why? So that he should deceive the nations no more. Notice this. Till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So the millennial kingdom begins with Satan being bound and imprisoned. And notice John sees an angel. He doesn't say he sees a great and mighty angel. He doesn't see Gabriel, right? He doesn't see Michael, the archangel, either. He just sees a common garden variety angel. An angel, and this angel has what? Has the key to the bottomless pit or the abuso. You guys remember the, 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 we've read about the bottomless pit throughout the book of Revelation. You may remember, remember when Jesus came to the area of Gadara on the Sea of Galilee? Remember he came in contact with the man possessed? You guys remember that? And the demons begged Jesus that what? Don't cast us into the pit. Don't send us into, don't send us into the bottomless pit or the abuso. Even the demons don't even want to go there. It seems to be some kind of a, a, a holding cell for demons. And it's super brutal. But out of this pit or into this pit comes uh, this, this angel's going to put Satan in this pit. Notice what it says. It says he's got a great chain and he lays hold of... Uh, of the dragon, that serpent of old, four names here uh, for the devil. Dragon speaks that he's a dragon speaks of a bloodthirsty murderer. I would say the serpent of old. Uh, he's the one that has lied and deceived from the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter three. He's the devil. Devil means accuser or slanderer. Satan means adversary. So he's the one who opposes God and opposes his people. And so notice. Um, this angel binds Satan for a thousand years and then tosses him in. He cuffs him and proceeds to toss him into the bottomless pit. He incarcerates the devil. Is the devil in prison right now? No way, right? Again, we are not in the millennial kingdom just yet. And so notice also this seal is set on the devil, a mark of security on the devil he has no power to break this seal. By the way, it's interesting. The word seal means with full security, backed and guaranteed by the owner. Why is that really interesting? Because that's the same word used for us as we're sealed with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. And so 
Notice it says he's unable to seduce or deceive or lead anyone into error, um, especially the nations, the whole world. His dastardly influence and work comes to an end um, till the end of the kingdom age or to the end of the thousand years. And notice it says after, after these things, he must be released for a little while. I, I read that and go, why in the world... <laughs> Why in the world does he we want him released? What's the deal with that? In verses um, seven to ten, he will come. He will test mankind during this time period, and some at this time will go his way. But then it's again, it's like why? Why does that need to happen? And, and I believe here's one reason: because choice means a lot to God. God created us with choice. And what we decide matters. Watch how this rolls out with me. Look at verse 4. After, or and, John says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls, is that interesting? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And so the millennial kingdom, notice with me, it involves thrones. John says, I saw thrones. And so who are these people sitting on the thrones? So who's it speaking of, you guys? Us. That's right. Remember we learned earlier uh, in chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus promised to the overcomer to sit with him on thrones, on his throne, to share and, and share in these thrones. Revelation chapter four and five. Remember the twenty-four uh, elders, which is a representative number of the the church, the bride of Christ. They're seated. They're seating on. They're seated on thrones. So this would include New Testament saints. I would say it also will include Old Testament saints. Daniel chapter twelve. If you get a chance to read Daniel chapter 12 also. Um, but it also includes tribulation saints also, right? These people that during the tribulation, they were willing to lay down their lives, to lay, lay down their neck, to be beheaded for Jesus Christ. And notice there's three W's associated with them. Why were, why were they martyred? Why, did, why, why were their heads taken? Why were their lives taken? Number one, or why will they be living and reigning with Jesus? That might be a little better. Number one, for their witness to Jesus. They went on record that they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, it says, for what? The word of God. They were not just hearers of the word. They were doers of the word of God. And then third, our third W is their worship. They didn't worship the Antichrist, but they worshiped Jesus Christ. And now we see that they are living and reigning. Death in the grave does not stop the believer, you guys. 
I love that. Reign, the privilege of reigning with Jesus and ruling with him. That could be amazing. Isn't that amazing, you guys, to consider? All of God's saints, New Testament, Old Testament, tribulation saints, we're going to be with Jesus, ruling and reigning. Will, will you be ruling and reigning with Jesus and, and alive? I would say if, if you're saying yes, then your life too will be marked by these three W's. Have you gone on record that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Do I need to do that, Pastor? You sure do. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 10. You guys know Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, check this out, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Have you gone on record confessing Jesus as Lord? What's the second W? The Word of God. Are you a doer of God's Word, brother or sister, friend that's here today? Are you a doer of God's Word? Jesus said, remember when Jesus' family came to see him? He was in the house teaching, and they couldn't get to him. Everybody's saying, Jesus, your family's here. Your family's here. And he, what did he do? He looked at all these people and said, Behold, my family, those that are hearers of the word and doers of the word, those that hear his word and do it. So Jesus' true family are those who hear the word of God and those who apply it in their lives. Jesus himself said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? There's a disconnect there if we're not doers of the word, and he gives us his spirit to help us, correct? Correct? His commandments are his enablements because of the power of the Holy Spirit within us. What's the third W? Worship. Do you worship the Lord alone? Do you worship the Lord alone? You shall worship the Lord only, and him you shall serve, Jesus said. No man can serve two masters, only the Lord. Are you worshiping him? And so Jesus is going to share his ministry with us in the future. And he shares with us now too, doesn't he? Aren't you glad Jesus shares his ministry with us? I mean, how gracious and how kind. And so notice verse 5, but the rest of the dead. So that's everyone else who died throughout history that have died apart from Christ. This is speaking of unbelievers. They will not rise from the dead. They did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And so until the kingdom age is done, and we're going to read about them in verse 11 through 15. Unbelievers will be raised to life to face judgment. It's called the second resurrection. We'll get to that in just a moment. But look at verse 5. It also says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So let's make this real simple. There's two resurrections. The first resurrection is for believers. The second resurrection is for unbelievers. Okay? The first resurrection is to eternal life. The second resurrection is to eternal condemnation. Are you guys with me? Are you easy enough to follow? All right. If you are taking part in the first resurrection, you're blessed. Oh, what does blessed mean? Oh, how happy is the man or woman who gets to take part in the first resurrection. You're holy. You're set apart as special. If you're taking part in the first resurrection, you are special to God. You are set apart, that's what holy means, for the Lord. Well, what is this first resurrection all about, you guys? 
The first resurrection is not a one-time event. It's not? It's not. Are you sure, Pastor? I'm sure. It's more like a parade. It is. 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, well, Colossians chapter 1 tells us Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. You guys remember that? He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning of resurrection. The one in whom the whole process starts, correct? Is Jesus the first one? <laughs> right? He's the first fruits also. Meaning that there's going to be a whole lot more. So we know that Jesus is leading the parade of the first resurrection. Who's at the tail end? The tribulation saints. We just read about them, right? They lived and reigned with the Lord. They laid down their lives for Jesus. They're going to be raised also. Then who's in between? Guess who's, guess who's us, you guys? The New Testament saints. Also, who comes after the New Testament saints? Revelation chapter 11. Remember the two witnesses were raised from the dead. Also the Old Testament saints. Again, Daniel chapter 12. So it's a, it's a, progressive, it's a progressive thing, not a one-time event. Are you following with me? Everybody, everybody on the same page or no? Yes. If you're not, you don't get it, come talk to me afterwards. It's a progressive, it's a progressive deal. And notice also in verse 6, for the believer, the one who takes part in the first resurrection, he will never face the second death. What's the second death? We're going to learn in just a moment in, in verses 14 and 15. It is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's the second death. And so the first resurrection, you know what that means for us, guys? That means new bodies. Hey, hallelujah is right. Some of you are saying, I don't need a new bod. Check, this, check out this bod, man. I'm yoked. <laughs> Listen, we're going to get new bodies fitted for all eternity. The old bod is from the sod. The new bod is from God. <laughs> Easy way to remember it. And one, look at Jesus after his resurrection and we get an idea of what life will be like for us. When we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We're told when Christ appears, we also shall appear with him in glory. Philippians tells us in Philippians chapter 3, I love this. Philippians chapter 3, we're waiting for Jesus, our Savior, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Isn't that going to be awesome, you guys? And so when we return with the Lord to planet Earth for the millennial kingdom, we're going to have new, glorified, resurrected bodies. It's going to be beautiful, wonderful. We'll be serving the Lord, or serving, serving Him as priests. Notice verse 6, it also says we're going to have this responsibility, this privilege of reigning with Him. For how long? How long are we going to rule and reign with Him? A thousand years, it says there. And, and it's interesting, in verses 1 through 7, we haven't got to verse 7 yet, but it keeps saying, what, what's the thing you keep seeing over and over and over again? A thousand years, a thousand years. It's six times in seven verses. Do you think God wants us to know how long it's going to be? How long the kingdom age is going to be? The millennial reign is going to be? It's going to be a thousand years. We're going to have bodies that are going to be changed. What we see now around us will be changed. It will be a perfect world, perfect environment. The devil's locked up. Jesus is giving us Bible studies, leading and guiding us. Why not just jump into chapter 21 and chapter 22? The eternal state. 
And wouldn't it be great just to kind of just go, just go into those chapters and we don't have to deal with that in the millennial kingdom? But again, God has promises for Israel and something else too. We're going to learn something. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden round two. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden round two. What do you mean? Well, there's a perfect environment. It's beautiful, beautiful garden. Then the devil shows up once again, and there's rebellion against God. And God is going to demonstrate and show us that there's some people that just won't fit in with him. And so what happens at the end of the thousand years? Look at the next verse, verse 7 and 8. When, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison. What's he going to do? And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together. Why? To battle. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the, of who? The saints. Who are the saints? That's us. Thank you. Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints. Now we're all together. We're saints. We're camping. We're camping out together too. Isn't that cool? Anybody like to camp out? We'll be camping out there. Where? Where are we going to be camping out? What's it say? It says, uh, and the beloved city. So the beloved city is surrounded. What's the beloved city? Jerusalem. And this is so, this is, is this interesting? Next verse. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. See you later. <laughs> the rebellion's over, just like that. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so, thousand years comes to a completion. The thousand years have expired. The devil's set free. He doesn't escape. He is set free. And what does he do? He heads right on out to trick people, to deceive people. He has been doing that for 6,000 years, 7,000 years now. And what's he going to do? Well, incarceration doesn't cure him. Please take note of that. Incarceration doesn't cure him. The slammer doesn't fix him. Chains don't change his heart. He's still a liar and a deceiver. Who does he deceive? What's it say? The nations. He's able to influence and infect lots of people. The four corners mean north, south, east, west. All over the globe, there's going to be people that are deceived. And notice it says also Gog and Magog. And it speaks of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, this invasion that will happen in Israel, and God stops the invasion just like that. Personally, it's my own personal opinion. I don't believe it's the same invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as we're seeing here. Um, you're entitled to your own distorted opinion. I see some differences. I think they're two different events. There's some differences that, uh, that occur in both. In any event, what we do need to take notice of is that the devil goes back to what he has always done, deceiving lots of people. So who in the world gets deceived? It's not us. It's not those that belong to the Lord. It's not the saints. Guess who it is? Remember at the end of the tribulation what happens? At the end of the tribulation, first of all, let's talk about the Jewish people that get saved. They cry out for Jesus, recognizing that He is the Messiah, He is the Christ, He is the Savior. 
And that is going to set Jesus in motion to come to set up his kingdom. But there's also, I think there's other believers that get saved too, that, that get saved, that, that make it through the tribulation. How do you know that? Jesus said in Matthew 25, if you're taking notes, there's going to be this judgment, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You guys remember that? He takes the sheep and they go right into the millennial kingdom. The goats are heading off into, into the eternal lake of fire, which we're going to see in just a moment. And so there will be a whole bunch of Christians that enter into the millennial kingdom for the thousand years. And so they're going to have children. A thousand years, that's a lot of time, isn't it? They're going to have children. These Christians will have children. And guess what? They're going to be born with a sin nature. Correct? They don't have their new glorified bodies just yet. They're coming in just as they were, passing through the tribulation, making it through into the millennial kingdom. No glorified resurrected bodies yet for them. They're, coming, they're having children, and those children have a choice of whether or not to follow Jesus. Are you tracking with me still? Those children will have a choice. They're raised in a, Think about this. They're raised in a perfect environment, perfect peace, perfect justice, no crime, Jesus teaching and leading, and yet we see that some will choose not to follow Jesus. Again, man has the freedom of choice, and it simply reveals their hearts. It's, it's crazy to think about this. A perfect environment, listen, a perfect environment doesn't change an evil heart. A perfect environment does not change an evil heart. There's only one that can change our evil hearts, and that's Jesus, who, promised to give, who promises to give a new heart to anyone that will repent and place their trust in him. And so the devil gets sprung. He goes out, and what does he do? He deceives this entire army, all these people. They march out. They spread out super wide to surround, what does it say, the camp of the saints. We're camped out with Jesus. The beloved city is encircled. And then notice this. It's so anticlimactic, isn't it? There's not much of a rebellion or an invasion. One minute they're ready to conquer, and boom, what happens the next minute? They're toast. They're consumed, just like that, with fire from God out of heaven. It's interesting, a couple things, someone was sharing with me after church about this whole event, and number one, this is the complete end of man's rebellion against God. But isn't it neat how God protects us? God is, is so good at protecting our lives. He's so faithful to care for us. His blood-bought children. I love that. But there's something else here that I think we need to take note of also. The devil is the accuser of the brethren, correct? And he deceives. How does he deceive? Sometimes using accusations about your brothers and sisters. Gossip. Slander. He deceives also, accusing God. He accuses God to men and men to God also. Why am I saying that? Because he doesn't always do his dirty work alone. He finds some willing customers to use, to use a tongue, to use an ear. And I think there's a danger. Where does it end? Where does it end when we, when we get involved with gossip and slander, accusations against our brothers and sisters? It ends up you're going to get devoured and burned. You're playing with fire. Are you with me? We don't want to lend, we don't want to lend our tongue to the enemy for gossip or our ear to the enemy to listen to gossip and slander. You know what I'm saying? Can, you do, can someone lend their tongue? Didn't Peter do it? Didn't Peter do it? 
You guys remember when Peter did it? One minute, he's a heavyweight prophet hearing from God. Peter, heaven and, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, that, he, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus said to Peter, man, heaven has the right assessment. You've come to the right conclusion too. It wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Wow, awesome. Peter's hearing from heaven. And then a couple minutes later, Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go to the cross to lay down my life. And what does Peter do? Remember what Peter does? Takes him aside and starts to, no, not, he starts to rebuke Jesus. Take, hey, stop saying those things. You're making negative confessions or whatever he says. And remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of man. That's he- Isn't that heavy? One minute you're hearing from God, the next minute you're being used as a tool. Correct? He wasn't saying you're Satan incarnate. He's saying you loaned your tongue. What you're thinking is, your thinking is demonic. To not go the way of the cross. That's why he came. That's why I came, Jesus says. To give my life a ransom for many. To come as a suffering servant the first time. But the second time he comes as a conquering king. Amen. So this invasion's over just like that. And it's a complete end of man's rebellion against God. Look at verse 10. The accuser, the devil, who tricked them. Where does he go? Into the lake of fire and brimstone. Who's, who's there already? The, who's the beast? The Antichrist, the false prophet, the, the entire unholy trinity is now in the lake of fire. It's a place of unending torment, 24-7, eternally. This is the devil's future, you guys. Eternal torment. Our adversary, the enemy of our souls. Listen, this morning, he knows where he is headed. His time is short. And he's working overtime to steal, to kill, and to destroy And you know what? He is not the co-equal of Jesus Christ. We need to make sure we understand that this morning. Satan is not God's co-equal. It's not like they're in a wrestling match and sometimes Satan's winning and he's got an arm bar on Jesus or a headlock. Jesus is the creator. Satan is a created being, a fallen created being who was lifted up in pride and fell down from heaven. He creates a lot of problems for us. Listen, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. John said, he who is born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. And so the devil ends up where? In the lake of fire. That's the biblical place known as hell. What does the Bible say about hell? It's described as outer darkness where the worm doesn't die, everlasting fire, the fire is never quenched, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of shame and everlasting contempt. Listen, hell is a place without hope. There's no second chances, there's no do-overs, there's no mulligans, there's no purgatory. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, Jesus said in Matthew 25. But if you reject Jesus Christ... And choose to submit your ways, submit yourself to the ways of the wicked one, then you will find that your future is the same as his in the lake of fire. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus this morning offers hope. He offers hope to anyone that will repent and place their trust 
in Him. Hell is a place of conscious, eternal suffering. Listen, Jesus spoke of hell as a place to avoid at all costs. Well, look what happens with me in verse 11 through 15 as we finish. What does John see next? Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Heavy. Probably the most sobering passages, or one of the most sobering passages in all the Bible right here. The great white throne judgment. It is the final judgment of those who rejected Jesus. The unbelieving dead will be raised. This is the second resurrection. Jesus calls this the resurrection of damnation in John chapter 5. When the unbeliever or the unrighteous soul or unrighteous person dies, their soul goes to Hades awaiting for this resurrection. Awaiting for this resurrection. Their bodies will be resurrected at the great white throne judgment. Listen, all God needs is their DNA to bring them before him. Notice what it says with me. John sees a great white throne and the Lord God Almighty sitting on it. And one glance from God, and what happens? One glance from God at earth and the heavens, and what happens? They vanish. They're gone. And all John sees now is this great white throne with God sitting there on it and all these people standing before God. This is heavy, man. That tells me, though, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth <laughs> right around the corner. It's coming. It says, John sees, verse 12, those who perish, those who cease to live, now they're raised, small and great. Listen, death is the great equalizer. It comes to everyone. No matter what your stature or status in life, Death hits all of us. Each person, notice, will stand alone before God and they will take ownership for their lives, personal responsibility. Standing before God. Isn't that interesting? Because because sometimes you hear people say, all roads lead to God. You know what? There's some truth to that. All roads do lead to God and you will either face Him as Savior or Judge. They're all standing before God He has books that are open before him. And one special book also called the book of life that's also open. And those who perished physically are now risen. 
standing before God to be examined. Their deeds, their actions, the things they've done outwardly, inwardly are written down. There's a history of their life. Notice in verse 13, those who died at sea or perhaps their ashes were scattered. They're resurrected. Death gives up the bodies. Hades gives up the souls. These places are going to empty out. These temporary holding places for the dead who are in them, they're emptied out now. And notice they were judged from the holding cells. They are brought to God's courtroom for judgment and sentencing. Please notice in verse 13, it says what? It says, each one. Each person will stand alone. There's no court-appointed attorneys. You have no intercessor with you. You have no one to plead your case. You have no witnesses. Because why? Because God is witness. Because God sees. Each person will be examined, notice what it says, based upon their works, their own works, not someone else's works, not someone else's relationship to God. Each person will be examined based upon what they've done. And please notice something that's interesting here that's absent. There is no one here demanding answers from God. You ever hear people say that? Oh, when I stand before God, I got some questions for him, man. Whoa, buckaroo. You know what's interesting here to take note of? It's observation. God keeps a record. God keeps a record. And it is an open and shut case. The judge looks at the law and then looks at the works. Man is exposed as a sinner. The books are checked. You broke the law. You are guilty. You will be held accountable for your behavior, for your attitudes, every thought, word, deed, everything you've ever done. And then what happens? He looks at those works and they don't measure up. Then he looks at the book, the book of life. What did that person do with Jesus? Did he receive God's pardon from sin by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Did he receive the free gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ? And one by one, this is like frightening, one by one, each had rejected Jesus and their works were insufficient. And what happens once the books are checked and the book is checked? Eternal sentencing. Verse 14 and 15. There's no need for death in Hades any longer. They're consolidated in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Those who rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Your name is not found in the book of life. This is your future. You die once physically and then a second time spiritually. And listen, um, if you're here today and you haven't received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not an accident you're here listening. For this person, you cannot blame anyone else for your decision concerning Jesus Christ. He loves you. He demonstrated his love for you by giving his life for you, for your sins. And God stacks the deck in his favor that you might come to know him. He does everything short of twisting our arms that we might spend eternity with him in heaven. God doesn't send a person to, heaven, to hell. You choose it. It's a choice you make. You've joined the rebellion of the devil and his angels. And the thought of eternal judgment and damnation is horrific, isn't it? But that's what God says. Where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know this morning the lake of fire is avoidable? The great white throne judgment is avoidable. How? 
by simply repenting and place, placing your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This, listen, this is not a game. Your eternity is at stake. Hell is not a myth. It is a real, literal place, and there is no party going on in hell. Contrary to songs and what people think, oh, I want to be down there where all the cool people are. You don't want, it's not going to be cool there. And listen, the thing about it is unbelievers know about hell. Before we came to know the Lord, we knew about hell. How do you know that, Pastor? Ecclesiastes 3, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And not only that, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is continually pointing the unbeliever to that. Their need for Jesus, their need for a Savior. That judgment is coming. If you've ever witnessed to someone, it's like almost every time I witness to someone, they know there's a hell, and it's literal. Listen, hell is an essential doctrine. We must not ignore the reality of hell. You know why? Because you don't have a gospel without the doctrine of hell. Did you catch, did you catch that, you guys? You don't have a gospel. You don't have the good news without the doctrine of hell. Why? Because God saves us to heaven from hell. Amen. <laughs> Without the doctrine of hell, you call into question the character and nature of God. If he doesn't judge sin, then he is unrighteous. But guess what? He is the righteous judge of all the earth, and the day of judgment is coming. It is appointed man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Listen, do you know that hell is connected with the love of God? God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Jesus, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever believes in Him shall never perish but have everlasting life. The Father didn't send the Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the love of God. By this we know love, that He gave His life for us. Hell is connected with the love of God. Listen, this morning, can I encourage us? Can I exhort us? Can I challenge us this morning? We must preach, teach, and communicate on hell. Why? Why? Number one, it awakens the unbeliever to the reality of eternal life after death. Listen to what it, sa listen to what it says in the book of Jude with me. This is written to us, guys, the church. And on some have compassion, making a distinction but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Did you guys catch that? Jude says to us, there's people that you've got to pull out of the fire to do whatever it takes to rescue them. Listen, this morning, are you rescued by Jesus? Rescued people rescue people. Rescued people rescue people. Why did the Lord leave us here? Why didn't He just take us home? When you gave your life to Jesus, why wasn't it just like straight to heaven? He's left us here for a purpose, has He not? People shared the gospel with us. People shared the good news with us. When we communicate 
about hell, it brings a burden for the lost. Listen this morning, what if you had the cure for cancer? Would you hide it? Would you keep it secret? Would you hold on to it? Or would you be compelled, compelled to share, to help the sick and the suffering? I would. I've had family members that have died of cancer. We have people in our church with cancer. I wouldn't hold I wouldn't hide it. Listen, you and I have what people need for deliverance from eternal suffering. And the solution is Jesus Christ. Listen, we must preach, teach, and communicate on hell. You know why else? It's a reminder we're not going there. It's a reminder we're not... Are you excited about heaven? <laughs> Listen, Jesus taught about hell, and so should we. That, that's, that should be enough right there. Some of you know uh, my daughter uh, Mackenzie and uh, Alana this year got hit by a drunk driver after a Wednesday night service. Gnarly, man. Wednesday night service. Some of you guys know I flew out of here and uh, got to the scene. And I'm like, I'm like, someone had to be praying for me because I was ready to like beat some that dude down. And can you imagine? Pastor in Cyprus. Uh, <laughs> headlines. <laughs> but the next, the next day, it's crazy. Alana, my eight-year-old, she was seven at the time, was saying, Dad, I'm worried, I'm worried. We need to pray. We need to pray. I'm like, what's the matter, baby? I said, we need to pray for that guy that hit us last night. I don't think he's going to heaven, Dad. I think he's going to hell. Here I am, ready to, <laughs> to put a hurting on that dude. And here from the, from the mouth of a babe sharing with me God's heart that he shouldn't perish because that's where he's headed. It's to hell. Listen, God, keep, God does keep a record. For us, the bad stuff has been washed away. Aren't you glad your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus? Listen, all that's left, all that's left is those things that you're going to be rewarded for. Anybody excited about that too or no? That's all that's left on your record. All the things you're going to get rewarded for. Your record has been erased. Our sins paid in full by our beloved Jesus and he said to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. May we rejoice, you guys, that we have been saved, we have been set free, that this world is not our home. We are heaven bound. Amen. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much. What else can we say this morning to thank you? You're so good. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord, giving us a second chance, a fresh start the privilege of being your kids, of serving you, and ultimately know we're going to be with you forever, Jesus. And so help us, Lord, along the way, each day.
to keep our hearts and minds fixed upon you. And what you want to do, Lord, in and through our lives. We can be so busy, so consumed with the things of this world and miss out on the things that you want to do. So consumed with so many sounds and voices that we miss out on hearing your voice. I pray that we would not miss out on hearing your voice, your heart this morning. That with the time that we have left, that we would redeem that time. Not wasting any time, but maxing it out for your glory. And this morning, as we're still in an attitude of prayer, you've come this morning. I don't think we need to labor it any longer. You don't know Jesus this morning. Eternity is right before every one of us. If you're a believer here this morning, would you be praying? It's the most important decision you'll ever make is concerning your eternity. If you're here, you don't know Jesus this morning. I want to pray with you lead you in a prayer as you open your heart to the Lord. So simple, even a child can understand. If that's you this morning, you just raise up your hand. I'm going to pray with you right now as you open your heart to Jesus. Again, it's the most important decision you'll ever make. We're not promised tomorrow. Anyone at all here this morning saying, yeah, Pastor, that's me. You want it all. Father, thank you so much. I, I trust that we are all your children here this morning. And that we would rejoice. Behold what manner of love that we might be called the children of God. And that is what we are. We look forward to that day of seeing you face to face, Lord Jesus. We pray for, Lord, any, any that are listening that don't know you, that you would continue, Lord, to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come to their hearts, that they wouldn't be hardened, that they would open up to you. We thank you so much. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for first loving us. It's in your precious and your holy name that we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. All right. So listen, if you need prayer this morning for anything, let some folks up front that will...